This is Ron Friedman speaking under great duress, reminding you that this is Gilbert Gottfried's colossal, amazing, unbelievable, stimulating, should be rated X because it contains things that could be harmful to your genitals podcast. Lucky you. It could be a <laughs> shitty weather report. <laughs> Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a musician, record producer, Grammy-winning songwriter, and Grammy-nominated recording artist who sold over 30 million records and continues to perform for sold-out crowds all over the globe. He's written songs for artists as diverse as Kenny Rogers, Luther Vandross, Barbara Streisand, Keith Urban, Vince Gill, NSYNC, and podcast guest Josh Groban, and has worked with and performed with Billy Joel, Lionel Richie, Ringo Starr, Olivia Newton-John, Joe Walsh, Celine Dion, Kenny Loggins, and Hugh Jackman, just to name a few. But wait, there's more. He's also the only male artist in the history to have the first seven singles reach the top five on the Billboard Singles Charts and the only artist to have written a number one hit in four different decades. He's recently re-released digital versions of his albums, Stories to Tell, A Night Out with Friends, Christmas Spirit, Beautiful Goodbye, Now and Forever, The Ballads, and will be re-releasing and will be releasing his first all-new album in five years later in 2019. This month also marks the 30th anniversary of his album, Repeat Offender, and he's just released Repeat Offender Revisited, a new collection featuring live and acoustic versions of songs from the original album. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show one of our favorite singer-songwriters and a man who says he had a very good reason for calling himself Richard. The multi-talented Richard Marks. Gentlemen, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted already. Gilbert, I can only imagine that you are, you just want to just call it a, let's just call it a day right there. Let's just. I I feel that way every one of my interviews. I'm sure you do. (laughs) We we heard your voice. We have proof that you were here. (laughs) It's like taking the Instagram picture when you get to dinner and go, okay, we can call it a night then, right? (laughs) 
Do you want to... Now, now the important thing to announce here, the most important thing for me, is Richard Marks is a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) That's the headline. Yeah, yes. I wish you had had ended the introduction, Gilbert, with... And he's a Jew. (laughs) Richard Marks is a Jew. You think? Richard, he gets so excited when we have Jewish guests. Really? We've done about 250 of these, yeah, each well, time. I, th- I think, you know, I, I in my uh, reading up on Gilbert, actually, um, just for little tidbits that I didn't know, wh- one thing that we share is that neither of us were bar mitzvah. I wasn't bar mitzvah either. Oh. Wow. So we're both bad Jews. Well, I'm Jew light. <laughs> actually, or as my as my wife says, you're not really Jewish, you're jew Ish. That's funny. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> can you, you can you take a second to explain that that last bit about the intro uh, from the intro? Oh Why yeah, you yeah, chose yeah. Richard. So, so I, you know, we'll probably discuss. Uh, you mentioned that we might be discussing my father. Yes. My father was a an extraordinarily talented and successful man um, named Dick Marks. He was um, started out as a jazz pianist in Chicago, where I'm from. And in the early 60s, he started his own jingle company and became, over the next 25 years or so, the most successful jingle composer and producer in history. I mean, I could go through, you know, the hit after hit after hit, these little 30-second and 60-second hits that he wrote. And we will. Can I interrupt you and just hear some of those that your father wrote? When a boy wakes up to a smiling face, he's been dreaming about raising a lamb. And there's two scoops of raisins and a package of Kellogg's Raisin Bran. My dad wrote that. Nice. Perfect. Uh, even when the lyrics sucked, like beyond <laughs> beyond suckage, he would, like, perfect example. He he wrote the music only because they would the, the advertising agencies would give him the slogans. He wrote the beautiful melody that went to Ask any mermaid you happen to see What's the best tuna? Come on. Chicken of the sea. That's my dad's great work. Right so, I mean, that's just two of hundreds and hundreds of famous jingles. But he was very well known in in my hometown of Chicago. He was like he would get stopped on the street. He was on TV here and there, and so people, you know, he he cast a big shadow. And from the time I was, you know, young, twelve, thirteen years old, I made a conscious decision that I would be Richard, because even at twelve, I knew that at least in Chicago. He would forever be known as Big Dick, and we know what that would make me. And no, nobody wants. No, that's not. That's not nice for anybody. There you go, Gil. <laughs> so now the listeners won't be wondering what that intro was all about. One of the ones I love is Lachoy makes Chinese food. Yeah, swing American. He that's did, a nice I little mean, piece of music yeah. too. Yeah, and he, you know, he was, um, you know, he was, he was very successful at crafting these catchy ditties if you will but he was also a really accomplished composer arranger conductor he worked on i mean i was lucky enough that he did some arrangements for me on some songs that became successful for me but he did work with joe cocker and he did film scores and he was he was the most talented musician i ever met wasn't he a child prodigy richard yeah he was he started playing when he was four or five started playing the piano and when he was 11 years old he conducted a full orchestra. That's incredible. For the first time. At 11. 
That would just oh, annoy geez. the shit out of me. I don't know about you. If I was a musician, if I was a classical player, I would look at some 11-year-old kid and go, I'm out. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read something that you, you, I think you said that the jazz greats that were coming through town, like Oscar Peterson and Duke Ellington, would, would make a, a point to stop and see him play. Yeah. Which is he a great was, honor. The, 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 I missed out on this, but like from 59, 1859, I think, to 61, 62, he was not only, um, the the house pianist at Mr. Kelly's, the famous jazz mm-hmm. club in Chicago, but he also played at places called the London House and um, um, and the Lealoa, which was a big club and a jazz club in Chicago. And he, I mean, he had those kind of luminaries that when they would come to Chicago, they would come to see Dick Marks play. And I heard those stories, and then a few years, well, maybe maybe ten years after my dad passed away, um, I met Tony Bennett for the first time. And I've met him several times since then. But the first time I met him, um, he said, your father was Dick Marks, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, I saw your dad. I went to see him play at Mr. Kelly's. He was one of the greatest pianists I ever heard. He was fantastic. So, you know, even cats like Tony Bennett are like giving my dad props. It was amazing. How about that? And and you sang on some of your father's jingles. I did. I sang uh, starting when I was about five or six years old. My dad realized that he was getting gigs for, you know, kid-oriented products like Peter Pan peanut butter and, and you know, Nestle's Crunch Bars and stuff like that. And I was, you know, walking around my house, even as a little kid, I was singing along with Beatles songs and monkey songs and shit. And, and my parents noticed that I was singing in tune. I could sing in tune. So they brought me down to the studio one day and tried me out on a jingle for... I think it was uh, crunchy, crunchy, crunchy. Nestle's crunch is so crunchy, or something like that. And Peter and Pan just, did you sing on the Peter Pan one? I too? did. Yeah. If you believe in peanut butter, clap your hands. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I ended Good up stuff. singing on. I ended up singing on a whole bunch of uh, kid-oriented jingles, and it was awesome because I number one, I sort of grew up in a recording studio, so I I had those chops. By the time I left home and you know pursued a career in the record business, which is a totally different world, but. I had studio experience for sure, but it was also because I used to occasionally get to get out of school to go down to the city and do a jingle. And I loved right. that. And, and I think Barry Manilow said in an interview, because he also yeah. uh, wrote sure. lo- loads of commercial Like a good jingles. neighbor, State Farm mm-hmm. is there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm stuck on Band-Aids. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he yep. said it's impossible for him to write a melody that's not catchy now because of his years writing commercial jingles. It's a, it's a real specific skill set, you know? That's why, you know, historically, I mean, we, I don't know that we really even have jingles anymore. I was just going to say, it's time. sort of a dying art. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly now it's licensing songs that people already know, right, hit of songs, course. and adapting them to sell your product. But you know, in that 20 years or so of the heyday of the jingle business, that was a really specialized skill set. And, you know, all nepotism aside, my dad was a badass. What was the candle ration one? Because we grew up on these, Richard. Oh, yeah. Candle ration. Uh, my dog's better than your dog. My dog's better than yours. Come on. My dog's better because he gets candle ration. My dog's better than yours. There you go. That's it. It, it is it is a talent. The greatest hits of Big Dick. We're, we're going right through them right now. And I remember in an interview, John Lennon saying he was 
a fan of commercial jingles. And he said the commercial jingles he would hear were just as good as the Beatles' early work. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know how high he was when he said that. But, <laughs> but it's a nice compliment. I think there was a, I think there was some, de- like he had just come from some partying. There's an art form to them, and you're writing in short form. You're writing 15 seconds or 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 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think the the culture is poorer for it that you don't you don't really hear them anymore. Yeah, not as as much. He also and and you and you would think that they'd be more popular than ever because our attention span is absolutely. You know, that's a good point. And and now I got to put you on the spot again. Can we hear some of the commercial jingles you came up with? Uh, zero. (laughs) <laughs> it's a big fat goose egg. I did not write any commercials. I when I was uh, seventeen, it was a very good year. Um, uh, yeah, I just went right by you. Guys yeah, we got house. it. Yeah, Sinatra. Yes, no, I got it. <laughs> um, I tried. My dad said, "Why don't you come down to the to the office and and I'll put you and I'll set you up in a, in a room with an electric piano and I'll give you a you know some uh, a, some slogans and copy and and you can try to write something and you can you know and he had I mean he wrote the lion's share of the stuff that got recorded but he had one or two writers that would you know help out and so I I spent a couple of days in this office and I just was like I first of all I'll never be half as good as my old man. And I just didn't, I wanted to make my own, I wanted to mm-hmm. do my own thing. Sure. And I knew that I just didn't have that, that gift for, you know, I have the luxury, I've always had the luxury of three minutes, four minutes, four and a half minutes, five minutes sometimes to say whatever I want to say and do whatever I want to do. My dad had to do it in, you know, 30 seconds. It was unbelievable. Did he also write the Blackhawk, the, the Chicago Blackhawks fight song? Yeah. Yeah. Here come the Hawks, the mighty <laughs> Blackhawks. Great. <laughs> fantastic if you go to o'hare airport and you park in the parking structure yeah. it's it's i think it's level four is that's the music that you hear it's awesome that's fantastic you write you write it in a very touching way about him too richard on your website uh you wrote something for for father's day but you you were reminiscing about how he felt guilty that he spent so much time away from home and so and you, there was a there was a moment where he heard harry chapin's cats in the cradle yeah wow i i can't believe you know this yeah i, th- I don't i think i might have even talked about this maybe once yeah i was about i guess that would have been about 75 when that song became a hit and i so i would have been 11 or 12 and he came home from work and he came into my my bedroom and and was emotional and my dad was a very stoic guy came Mm -hmm. from that i mean he was a really loving uh, you know demonstrative dude but i i only saw him cry a few times and he came in and he had tears in his eyes and I thought something horrible had happened. And, and he said, um, you know, we have to hang out more. We have to play catch more. We have to, you know, you're growing up so fast. And I heard this song in the car and it just broke my heart. And, and I was his second family. Uh, he had three kids from his first marriage and didn't have much of a relationship with them at all. Um, he made up for that years later too, but and I and I realized that as much as I loved him and admired him, I didn't really know him, I, you know, because he was always gone. He was sure. always at the office, and he was always and even when he was home, his head was in, you know, the 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 following week's jingles. I mean, it was a it was a really high pressure, uh, career as well. But he was always there for me if I needed him. And but he just he was not a dad that showed up at you know yeah. baseball games and stuff like that. And that song and that day 
really affected him and and it began the relationship the friendship that we enjoyed for you know the next 20 years as long as i had him yeah um and he was you know he became not only this this amazing uh talent that i admired but he became my best friend like we had an extraordinary friendship it's wonderful that he got to see your success too and wound up contributing to your records that was that's one of the greatest gifts for me is that not only did he see it but he was part of it he you know he i had it i mean he did several things but i had a really big hit in the 90s called now and forever and i went to him and i said you know i would love you to write the string arrangement for this and it's just a string quartet and he wrote the most beautiful string arrangement that i do to this day you know it's it's i feel really lucky that i got to share that stuff with him it's nice and, and he sounded like he was happy you were going into the same business oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean it was you know it was a it was a language that we both spoke you know even my mom who i'm you know she's 83 and and still you know kicking ass and um and i have always had a great relationship with my mom as well i'm an only child and and she would even acknowledge that you know your dad and you have this special extra bond you know you speak the language of music to each other so sometimes we'd be in the car you know and a song would come on and there would be a a chord change or something that would affect like sometimes uh you know and and i speak to a lot of people or especially musicians there are these things these moments that happen when you hear other people's work that sometimes really does make the hair stand up on your arm you know and gives you goosebumps and I live for creating those moments myself, but I also still live for hearing them. I love when somebody writes something that just moves me that way. And there were many, many times when my, I'd be with my dad at a gig or a concert or, or in a car listening to music or, you know, or even sometimes a, a piece of uh, film score, like at a movie theater. And there'd be a moment that would really affect me. And he and I would look at each other because it hit him the same exact way. So on top of everything else, we had that uh, bond as That's well. That's nice that you had to share. You got to share that. What, yeah. What were fa- some of your favorite film scores? Oh, well, um, the first one that really, like, really affected me. Um, I'm sure I loved you know music from different films up until this point, but um, I guess I would. I was just about to leave home, so I was 17 or 18, and I, and the film on Golden Pond came out, and. The the score uh, was by Dave Grusin, mm-hmm. and Dave Grusin is an Academy Award winning composer. He did he scored on Golden Pond. He scored Reds for Warren Beatty. He scored Heaven Can Wait for Warren Beatty. He scored um, many 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 wrote some amazing wrote some films. bitch and TV themes too. Bitch and TV themes. Yeah. He did keep your eyes <laughs> right. on the sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> I think it takes uh, a thief too. Yeah, and it takes a thief. Yeah. I mean, Dave Grusin. So Dave Grusin became a hero to me uh, because of his film scores. And again, he's the, he was the, he's the quintessential example to me of a guy that writes uh, instrumental music that absolutely wrecks me emotionally, just in this choice of, of chord changes and the way he plays piano. And so cut to, he was a fan of my dad's. My dad and Dave knew each other a little bit, but Dave was a fan of my dad's. And... Um, and I met Dave Grusin in a hallway, you know, in the 80s, and we just sort of stayed in touch. And then about seven years ago, 
I got to sit down on a piano with Dave Grusin and write a song for, a, I was doing a Christmas album. Wow. Yeah. You know, we Jew, the Jews that make Christmas albums. <laughs> All the best Christmas music was written by Jews. I mean, come on. Neil, Diamond, Neil a, Diamond's made four, I think, or something <laughs> I'm like that. I'm glad it's a tradition that's enduring. Yeah. Uh, and so I wrote this piece of music with Dave Grusin. And you can only, you know, I've had many, many examples of in my life where I, I really believe that I, I pull these people into my life, these people that really have made an impact on me. Somehow I, I manifest them into my life. You know, they cross my path. And, and in the case of Dave Grusin, I got to write a song with him and, and I've gotten to spend time with him. So what a treat. Yeah. On Golden Pond is one of my favorite scores. I think my other favorite film score is um, another uh, amazing composer who we lost a few years ago named James Horner. Um, the score to Braveheart absolutely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kills me. Absolutely kills me. That's th that that whole score is amazing. I noticed so. on your website too. You posted a tribute to John Barry when he passed. Oh yeah, out yeah. of Africa. That's yeah, no, that's a great one. That's right up there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, John Barry was. Uh, you know, he did a, you know so many of the Bond themes. And, yeah, um, and he was he was magnificent uh, talent. Just before we jump off your, your dad, and we'll come back to him too, but I want to talk about a little bit about Mr. Kelly's and some of the people that went through there, because I found on, on your social media, there was a picture of you and Bob Newhart, who knew your oh, dad, yeah. who was yeah, somebody, yeah, yeah. obviously a Chicago-based comic who played Mr. Kelly's. Yeah. So did he play? Because so I know he played for Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Well, he not only played for Lenny Bruce, and, and Lenny didn't, uh, I, I don't know that Lenny used, uh, maybe you guys know, but I don't think Lenny in general involved other people in his act like even musicians or whatever or certainly not house pianists or whatever but he took a liking to my dad from playing at kelly's and he he started to like he i think it was maybe his second or third time there he said dick you got to get up with me and we're gonna do we're just gonna riff on some stuff and i'll just cue you and you will just you know wing some stuff and one of my dad's favorite stories was i mean he loved lenny he absolutely loved him but he said lenny bruce is the only uh, is responsible for the only time I, w I was ever drunk on stage. Wow. Because my dad was not really a drinker. I mean, he wasn't like against it, but he just, he was never his thing. Um, and Lenny got him hammered at Mr. Kelly's one night. And I said, so did you play better? He goes, I played like shit. <laughs> I, played, I played like I had boxing gloves on. Um, but yeah, um, my, you know, the stories that I've gotten, I, that I got to hear about, Lenny Bruce and Bob Newhart and um and he also and I when I I did I just see Mr. Newhart not too long ago and I I had never met him but uh -huh. I we were at this uh event and I went over to him and he was so gracious and and you know when my opening line to him was I, Dick Marks was my father his eyes lit up and he goes oh you're Richard yes your dad let me sit down let me tell you some stories about your dad I loved your dad so oh, nice Tim Conway was another one that he was uh that he worked with and, um, and, and he played for, uh, you know, these amazing jazz singers that came through there as well. Sure. Sure. And he released albums. I mean, you can go on YouTube and hear his music. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. A, a prolific uh, output. And yeah, who, yeah. who were some of the jazz singers? Um, he played, I, I don't, I, I mean, I know that he played at the same time as Ella and, um, and Julie London. I know he worked with Julie London. Um, well, everybody uh, went through Mr. Kelly's. Yeah, everybody. Sarah and he, Vaughan. He either played for them or played in front of them or, you know, but interacted with them. And, right. Um, yeah. Sarah Vaughn. I know he worked with Sarah yeah. Vaughn as well. Yeah. So big turning point. So you're home now. You've, you've, you've done these, you've done background singing on some jingles. 
Right. And and you you're still what writing your own songs as a teenager and yeah and, and singing where you can and obvious- just trying to get just trying to get laid. <laughs> No, I mean that's true. It's really true. I mean, yeah, there came a point when I took it very seriously, and I and I knew that I wanted to be a professional songwriter and musician. But the imp- the initial impetus for writing a song was I was trying to, you yeah. know, get lucky with Lynn Harwich. Somebody should do a sociological study of how many people, how many guys went into rock and went into music and songwriting for that reason. Well, it's a very high percentage, <laughs> and, and not comedy, right, Gil? No, no. <laughs> Although I, you guys have you guys have done pretty well yourselves. I I had a comedian I worked with tell me that you know when he he used to have a garage band and he got laid constantly with the garage band and when he went into comedy that all stopped. <laughs> it dried up <laughs> overnight. <laughs> I just want to talk about the turning point too. When you were, uh, see if I get the the age right, seventeen. When you got your, and we're talking about cassette tapes in those days. Yeah, you got your your cassette tape to a friend of a friend of a friend who knew. Yep, Lionel Richie. Right. And this is when this is the same year that Lionel was leaving the Commodores to do his solo thing, and um, and I remember, I you know I'd only written maybe five songs, and I and I they were pretty professionally recorded i i used my dad's recording studio but i had to pay for it with my own money um my dad was like i'm not gonna you know this is a business like you, yeah. you've got you got money in your savings account you got to pay the musicians you got to pay the engineer you got to pay for the studio like you would anywhere else and it, it it of course you know it made that time very precious and i was very focused and very professional about it and so i i did this demo of these first you know handful of songs that i wrote and a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend played, you know, played a couple of the songs for Lionel Richie. And I remember hearing from one of the friends saying that, yeah, so, so-and-so knows Lionel Richie. And, and for a long time, for many years, when I would tell this story in interviews or, or, you know, about how I kind of started and how I ended up moving to LA and, and, Lionel hired me as a background singer mm-hmm. on his first album and was very encouraging to me. I tell, I used to tell the story in a way that would, and I would always say, I couldn't believe it. One day Lionel Richie called me up. I just couldn't believe it. And I realized a few years ago that that's not true, that I really, it, it goes back to the Dave Grusin thing. There was a part of me that really believed that Lionel Richie was going to call me and say, hey, you know, how can I help? And I love it's that. what happened. It's what happened. Because I, I think that, you know, I, I, I try to impart this not just on my kids. You know, I don't have kids. They're grown men. But I try to impart this on them and my friends that, you know, it's that classic, uh, you know, what you think is what will be, you know. Well, you had faith. Yeah, but I had – it was beyond that because I I really believed that these things were going to happen. Like I knew that I could see them and and systematically they all happened and to – in one, you know, to one degree or another, and Lionel Richie uh, was such a huge catalyst. He's a he's a total gentleman uh, to this day. When I run into him, you know, I, I I just adore the guy. Like he's just the sweetest guy. And he not only did he encourage me and and hire me as a background singer, but he recommended me as a background singer to Kenny Rogers. Um, and that's how I ended up getting my first songwriting credits. Was you know I just 
I, I, I was in the right place at the right time yeah. and I seized an opportunity. But I, none of that would have happened at that time without Lionel being the catalyst. You said to your parents, Lionel Richie wants me to, to come out to L.A. where it's all happening. And, and they basically endorsed you blowing off college and going. Yeah. I mean, what Go. does that say about them? They, you know, they were like, yeah, you could go to Northwestern and study music for four years or, you know, maybe stumble into something else. But this is what you want to do. And well, you have smart. an opportunity. Go. You can always, if, if you shit the bed, you can always go back to school, you know? That's great. Good parents. Yeah. Yeah. Good guidance. And Gil yeah, and I got a kick me. out of the fact that, that, that you were, well, first of all, the chutzpah move, you're, you're a backup singer. And, 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 and having the balls to say, I'm going to go give a song to Kenny Rogers because I overheard oh, him man. say he needs a song. Is, yeah. re- is, as I said, pretty ballsy. Because that sounds like he could have easily have said, hey, you know, go back to your fucking backup thing. And- <laughs> He's the nicest guy about, in the world. Or how about get fucking security in here right now and get this guy <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> security escort this asshole to the parking lot. He could have easily said that and would have been justified in doing so. But again, you know, like Lionel, this is a guy that um, was gracious to me. You know, he, he, I mean, the fact that he even said, well, you know, let's go to the piano and play it for me. He could have easily just said, you know, hey, I'm good. Like I had, he had no reason to listen to my song. He was paying me to sing background vocals on existing songs. They were finishing a record. He, you know, the fact that he did that is just it's uh, it's unbelievable to this day. So I played him the song and and he he suggested like one little change and then of course, you know, jumped on the song as a co-writer. Yeah, and Gilbert we, we and I joke. got a kick out of that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we joke got- about it to this day. <laughs> no dummy. He said to me last time I saw him and he he he's I always I check in on him every every month or so cuz he's not um he's had a lot of health issues in the last year. Um but the last time I saw him uh, a few years ago, we did a, a charity event for the Ronald McDonald, the Ronald McDonald Foundation. And I asked him to come and sing a few songs with me and my band. And he was my special guest. And it, the audience like flipped out. I and mean, he's such a legend. And we did Lady and we did The Gambler and we did, right. you know. And then we did this 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 first song that, that was my first hit that he co-wrote. And I'm, I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> No, yeah, okay. <laughs> Called crazy. Richard's doing air quotes. <laughs> and even on stage, he said at the end of the song, you know, a huge ovation. And he said to the audience, he goes, you know, a lot of people don't know this. We said, Richard really actually wrote that song, but I get half the royalties. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious. And you mentioned Ronald McDonald's house. You have a large group of uh, charities. Yeah, with cystic fibrosis, he's done concerts for Toys for Tots, everything. To your yeah. credit, Richard, to your credit. You know what? I've just been I've been approached and asked to do stuff for, you know, and look, here's the thing. From the time I had my first hit in 87 as a singer, you know, you get you got Gilbert knows this too. You know, you if you have if you're known, you're going to be approached or asked to help out with various things and you have to pick and choose obviously, but um, I just felt so grateful to, I, I met some amazing people and also it's like, I, I remind people all the time. I showed up for generally, I show up and sing a few songs. It's not heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the shit that I do anyway. So it's not like I'm, you know, doing this huge, like I, I, I get a little, um, sensitive when I, if I see 
uh, performers taking a bow for that shit. Like, dude, that's what you do. Sure. Like, you're like, come on. Um, but I, I appreciate that. But I, but the people that I've met uh, through doing these charity events and, and getting involved with these charities, especially the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which I'm passionate about, maybe above all else. Um, it's been, you know, I've gotten a tremendous amount out of it just from meeting amazing people. I have to say, I've been, I've worked in television for about 25 years and a lot of talk shows, a lot of award shows. Kenny Rogers and uh, Lionel Richie are two of the nicest people right? that, I've, that I've ever encountered. Yeah. Just no yeah. celebrity ego. No. Genuine, warm. No, they're so just gracious. None of this surprises me. They're but, both, they're both elegant men and they're gracious and they're just classy, you know, like they're, I was so lucky to work with them at the age that I was to see that, um, you know, and be influenced by that. And then a couple of years later, I just turned into a total asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so fuck those guys. Nice guys finish last. <laughs> so you sang back up on all night long. Yeah, and a, and for a lot of other people, right in in those yeah. years, Dolly Parton yeah. and and uh, and yeah. who else? Who else? Uh, George oh, Benson. Do God. I have these night? Yeah, George Benson, Julio Iglesias. Iglesias. Yeah. Um. Oh, I, I that 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 session with Julio Iglesias was amazing. He he's really a character. Um, Madonna. I sang on a Madonna record. Um, I sang on probably. Oh, a share record. I, wow. I sang on probably 15 or 20, the Chicago 17 album, which was a huge hit. Um, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. I sang on, I was a professional background singer for three years while I was trying to get a record deal. And um, I got to work on some really big records and work with great artists. And um, yeah, it was great. That was an extra great training ground. I was going to say, even, even though you were struggling to get your own recording career off the ground, do you still have, do you, you, you have fond memories of that? I mean- Oh those yeah, were, those were absolutely. It was really exciting. It was really exciting, and and just sort of passing these people in the hall. I remember passing Rod Stewart in the hall. You know, I've done gigs now with Rod Stewart, but mm-hmm. you know, I was a huge Rod Stewart fan. I remember passing Rod Stewart in the hallway of this uh, of this recording studio on Beverly Boulevard here in Hollywood, and just going, "Fuck, Rod, that's Rod Stewart right there. He's it's Rod. That's the guy." Um. So you know, being rubbing elbows with these people that were you know, my heroes and people that I was such a fan of. And, um, and then in a lot of cases, getting to work with these amazing, and, and working with Madonna, not working with Madonna, but singing background vocals on a Madonna song that she produced. You know, I, when I got to the studio, I thought there's no way she's going to be here. You know, she's not right. going to show up for a background vocal date. You know, she was producing the whole record. She knew exactly what she wanted. She was a blast to work with. She was funny and hot. And I, I fell madly in love with her over that 90 minutes. Gilbert, you ever work with Madonna? No. <laughs> I, could see the, I could see the two of you doing something together. Yes. <laughs> totally. I could totally Can't see Can't you it. see him in the, in the cone bra? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> it's Frank and Gilbert yes, time. Yes, it's Frank and Gilbert time. It's Frank and Gilbert time. It's Frank and Gilbert time. It's Frank and Gilbert time.
Now, what are some of the most important lessons you learned about songwriting? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, I think the, the, I don't know if it's a lesson, but I know that for me, I've, first of all, I've never tried to write a hit song because I think that that's just setting yourself up for failure. Um, every song that I've written that has had uh, some amount of success, whether it be a huge number one song or, you know, a top 40 single or whatever, every song I've written that has had some modicum of success, I never thought oh, this is a hit when I wrote it or even recorded it or listened back to it. I, I just have always written songs that I like. And I figure if I like this, there's probably going to be other people that like it too. And obviously there's songs that um, nobody's ever heard or they were album cuts because the record company at the time was like, no, we're going to go with Satisfy. We're not going to go with Nothing You Can Do About It. Mm -hmm. You know, two songs on the same album that, if they'd picked nothing you can do about it, maybe that would have been the number one song. You know, who knows? I, I didn't, I, I was not invested in those kind of decisions. And I made that decision when I was first writing songs. It was like, I'm just going to write music and lyrics that I love and leave the rest of that to everyone else. And it's true to this day. Um, Your process so think, is, go ahead. No, I just, to answer Gilbert's question, I think, the, the if if there's a lesson in that it's that you you don't get hung up on that bullshit and you don't let that stuff interfere with your creative process you just the creative process is still as pure as it was the first time i ever wrote a song which is i mean in a, and in a way it's like I, I mean i wrote a song recently i've been married now this time for 3 3 and a half years and I realized that this song that I was working on, this, this lyric, I was writing a song to totally impress my wife. Like there was no, there's no other reason for, and it might be a song that somebody else records or, cause you know, I'm 55, I'm not going to be on the radio anymore, but it's a song that could be a hit for somebody else. Maybe who knows? But the point is that the, the pureness of it was just like that first song I wrote in high school, trying to, you know, get a date with Lynn Harwich. This song was like, I, I want Daisy to hear this and just melt, you know? And so the, the process, in, for the most part, is exactly the same as it's always been. Can I hear the song you wrote for Lynn Harwich? Oh, no. <laughs> I no, got you, to. No, you may not. I fucking have to. I'll tell you what. If you come over to my house. And Go to we, L.A. And I have a couple of tequilas, I might bust out the old demo for Gilbert. But... <laughs> I ain't playing that shit on public now radio. Now you got a reason to go see Richard Marks at his house. You know, the other story, Richard, about songwriting that's interesting is is you're talking about writing hazards, setting out to to try a, to write a story song. Yeah. Because you were a fan of them. Yep. And and how uh, uh, your wife said, your, I guess your wife at the time said, you said, ah, there's nothing to this. And she heard it and she said, nope. There's something she there. She did. That's a she hit. She did. That's my a hit. Ex-wife, my ex-wife absolutely called that one. Um, and, I mean, she has, you know, half of all my old songs anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but she did. She called nice. it. Um, she called it. And I was not, I mean, I liked the song, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think that it had any commercial value whatsoever. And she was like, you've got to put this on your album. Um, and, you know, the song is, is uh, 
I mean, the, the music woke me up out of a sound sleep in the middle of the night on a tour. And, and the music was like, maybe this is the only time I've ever dreamed a complete piece of music. Like it was a completed verse, pre-chorus, well, chorus, wild. bridge, everything. I could hear the whole thing in my head, no lyrics. And then I, and the music was sort of haunting to me. And so I thought, I'm going to, this is my opportunity to write a story song. And I concocted this story, this murder mystery set in Nebraska. It, it Ultimately, the more I worked on it, the bigger a piece of shit I actually thought it was starting to sound like. And it started to sound like a horrible Twin Peaks episode you know, or something. <laughs> but I but I loved the uh, exercise of writing something so different than I'd written before. So, you know. My ex-wife convinces me to put it on the record, on the album. It's the second single, I think, from the album. That's and it, yeah. there you it's go. huge and it's hit around the world. And to this day, I actually have people come up to me, to my face, and ask me if that's... It's a song, first of all, Gilbert, in case you don't know, it's a song about this little town in Nebraska and a girl named Mary that lives in the town, beautiful girl ends up dead in this river that runs through the town. And my character is the narrator of the story. I'm telling the story, but I'm also a character. I'm this weird guy that lived in the town and everybody always thought he was weird. And everybody of course thought my, the guy, I killed this girl, Mary, and I'm professing my innocence. And from the time the song became a hit up to literally a week ago, I've had people come up to me to my face and ask me if the song is autobiographical. <laughs> Ouch. Like, yeah, I fucking killed this chick in Nebraska years ago and wrote a song about it. Which takes balls. Yeah, right? <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. One of my favorites of yours, Richard. And thank you. I thank had you. heard that story. Terrific song. I've heard songwriters tell stories of waking up in the middle of the night with a melody. And oh, I always yeah. thought it was bullshit. Well, McCartney supposedly with yesterday. He dreamed woke yesterday. Woke up with yeah. that in his head, yeah. But it was scrambled, scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs, yeah. But Gilbert, haven't you woken up in the middle of the night with a whole routine in your head? No, not for <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> now you just get up to piss, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah about... 50 times yeah. a night. There's, you, you, your act is pretty intact from those old days. Yes. In the 80s, you must have you must have at some point, Richard's got a point, you must have at some point awakened with a bit yes. in your head. Did you keep yeah. a pad by the bed or do anything like that? No, no, I kept porn by the bed. <laughs> <laughs> See, every, everyone has a different method, Richard. But wait a minute. So here's my question for you, Gilbert. Would, would you say that the bulk of your material over the, your lifetime was mostly inspiration or perspiration? How much I, of it was you just coming up with shit or how much of it was you like... It, yeah. Ma or masturbation? <laughs> well, masturbation is 100%. Well, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. As your Funny or Die video yeah. my, <laughs> illustrates. Mine was, I guess, inspiration. Like some would just hit me when I'd yeah. be on stage... And I'd make a joke about it, and then I'd stretch it out. Right. And, yeah, perspiration, that's like, I don't know, Jerry Seinfeld's a perspiring comic. Right. right. You mean he works hard? Yes, yeah. yes, he works. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that some of these guys will, like, make, like, from 1 p.m. to 5.30, I'm going to go in this room, I'm going to write material. Oh, and I can't do, I've never been able to do that as a songwriter. And I wonder if that's, it just seems like it would just be 
uninspired. Oh yeah, not me. I couldn't. I couldn't sit down. I'd be. Uh, I'd be turning on the TV. Yeah. Well, your bit. He has. A, he has a crazy bit in his that's been in his act for years, Richard, about ben, the actor Ben Gazzara and a UFO, sure. which I won't go into. Okay. <laughs> it takes I'm gonna to, have to. I'm gonna have to. You look can that find show. it. We'll send it to you. Uh, where does something like that come from? I you don't. just worked that out on stage and yeah, through, yeah, through. I worked out and and Ben Gazzara's name. <laughs> Popped I mean, it. of all the people, seriously? <laughs> yes, yes. It could have been George I mean, Maris. I know, I'm 55, so I know exactly who Ben Gazzara was. <laughs> but that's Jesus. When, when the joke was relevant. Yeah. Well, but even even then, I'm sure half the audience went, what the, f- what? Yeah, and and I once did a that's show. I fell in love with him. I once did stand-up in London and uh, for one show, and they said, well, we need someone... We need the, who's more people in London would know or another celebrity. And mm-hmm. I was consciously trying to think, and I was thinking, no, Ben Gazzara. It's Ben Gazzara. <laughs> and it's got to be Ben Gazzara. It's only funny to say Ben Gazzara, not, yes. not Sir Cyril Richard. No. It's not funny. <laughs> no. Ben Gazzara is, is, a, is a perfect name for a great bit. Yeah. And that's one of those where I go, where the fuck did that mm-hmm. come from? Mm-hmm. You seem like a bit of a student of comedy, Richard, too. And we just referenced your, your Funny or Die video, which we will urge our listeners to check out. But, I mean, I read reviews of your shows, of your live acoustic shows, and I read one where somebody said, you know, you could have had a stand-up career if you wanted one. You, you, uh, you I, don't, do, I don't think so. You do have comic timing. Um, I think that there are, I, I mean... You guys will both attest this. There are a lot of people who are who have their funny moments, you know, and, and are generally funny. Ha- see the humor in things. Are quick witted. Uh, I have a very sarcastic uh, sense of humor that I, I another thing I got from my old man. Um, but it doesn't mean that we would necessarily thrive in the in the world of comedy the way you know a master like Gilbert or the, you know these guys. But I I I have found myself. Uh, friendly with uh, some of these guys especially a couple of guys that i like i was a i was a big richard lewis fan when mm-hmm. i was really we young. had richard here and you know richard's he'll be the first to agree with me he's fucking crazy as fuck yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and i love him so much but he and i became friendly uh, on my first album we were at some radio event together and i was i, I just was always a fan of his and and he and i became friendly and i and I, there are a few guys that I have uh, sort of been around and watched. I, I, I'm a student of watching the way I think their minds are working in terms of turning something, a situation into, into a funny story. My dad was a really good storyteller, funny storyteller. And that's kind of what I've tried to do in my, in my solo acoustic show. I do, I'd even do it now a little bit in the band show, but most people just want to come. They just want to hear the music, which is fine. But when I do these uh, solo acoustic singer songwriter shows, first of all, I don't know if, it, if you guys have ever seen a solo acoustic singer songwriter show, but it makes you want to generally blow your fucking head off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, a, it's like performance really, art. Even, even the most talented singer songwriters that I like guys that I really, and women that I really admire 
a couple of times I've seen them and they're starting let me tell you this is what I was going through when I wrote this song and only but the muse like fu- I don't fucking care that's like that's just boring shit to me make me laugh like entertain me I, I you know make me feel like I'm hanging out with you I don't this whole serious singer songwriter thing is just anathema to me so so what I what I've tried to do is much like you just said Gilbert like I'll just be shooting the shit with the audience or or say something or something will happen in a moment and then it gets a huge laugh and i just cultivate it and it becomes part of the show until you know until i've worn that out for a a year and then it's time for some new stuff but i you know i was saying to my wife the other day she said uh she said the the laughs that you're getting are just more than ever like it's just unbelievable i go yeah and that's during the ballads but um (laughs) But she said, are you aware of it? And I said, I'm not only aware of it, I'm more focused on what happens in between the songs than I am the music now. To me, when I leave the stage from a solo acoustic show after, you know, it's usually a two hour set, I'm, my, uh, my review of that show is going to be based upon how many laughs I got. And (laughs) that doesn't surprise me. It just, it means the world to me when I know that something is really funny and delivering it as if I'm delivering it for the first time and getting a huge laugh is fucking Viagra, man. It's like, it's, it's so exciting for somebody who's not a a comedian to get laughs every night in the right spots. It's I was watching the stories to tell DVD and you have, you know, and you have those stories on there. Yeah, but there's a, a but and I saw some other video where you told the, the the funny story about giving Brian Adams the concoction for his throat. Right, and you t- <laughs> right. you tell them very well is what I mean. I've worked with comics a long time. You have a you, you, there's a timing to it. There's a there's a, a spontaneity to it and a natural ability, a, a, well, a natural storytelling ability that you have. That you may you. have well, gotten you know, from your dad, or you're just yeah. No, my dad had great uh, comic timing. If you were here in the room, I always, when we have this conversation, I always say to the person, you know, ask me what makes my jokes when they go, what, ma- timing. Yeah. So, oh, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate that, Frank. Uh, you know, I, but these things actually happened. You know, they're all, th- I, they're, they're all yeah. true stories that, you know, like, there's a thing that I have been doing now that happened to me at a Whole Foods. I went into a town and, um, and I got in the afternoon and I had just enough time to grab a bite and there was a Whole Foods market near the hotel. So I went in there and um, got a couple of things. I went up to the cash register and there was a very attractive young lady at the cash register. And um, she rang me up and it was like, you know, 1746. Okay. And I had a credit card. And now, you know, you you don't know whether to swipe the credit card or insert the chip. Sure. So it was, so it was, insert, okay, insert the chip. I put the card in and the machine goes, eh. And I looked at her and I said, I just used this card this morning. She goes, no, sir, it's definitely not your card. We've been, we've been having trouble with this machine all, all day. And then she looked me right in the eyes and said, could I get you to pull it out and slide it back in again? Oh, man. <laughs> so that Gilbert, happened to me. Gilbert just got and, very excited. And, I, and that night at the gig, I told that story. To the audience. Now, I forget where I was. Let's say it was Lowell, Massachusetts. So, like, yeah, the, you know, I was at the local Whole Foods down here in Lowell, and I tell this story, and it got this huge laugh. The next night, I'm in, uh, you know, D.C., 
And I go, yeah, I got into town today and I stopped at Chipotle and I tell this whole story as if it happened in Chipotle in their town and it fucking killed again. And it's, I've told it in every single show since then because that's the kind of stuff that if I were in the audience, I would want sure. to laugh. Well, didn't you? Yeah, I'm there to. When you, I, go ahead, I go. remember Rodney Dangerfield telling a story. He, he and Henny Youngman. Uh, went to see this girl singer, and she was, was Ben Gazzara with him. He was there. Uh, yeah, it should have been. <laughs> so, and they, this girl sing was doing long intros to every one of her songs, and and at one point she said, "Now I'd like to take you all on a long exotic journey." And Henny Youngman stood up and yelled, "I'm not going," and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> But conversely, when you see a concert, when you're a kid, and, and I don't know if you, you agree with me on this, Richard, you'd go and you'd see a performer, and when they just go song to song and not interact with the audience at all or, or, or kind of acknowledge the audience, there's a little bit of banter, you feel cheated a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you feel like yeah. they're, just, they're just doing it by rote and going from city to city. I don't, I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't care. You know, uh -huh. when I, I, when I saw a band play, I just want, I, I was just so mesmerized. I'm seeing this band They're they're actually yeah. right in front I of me. It. I used to actually have that thought of like, they're right there. That's them. Um, and so, but then, yeah, when I started, when I saw enough concerts, you know, you mentioned Harry, uh, the, the Harry Chapin song that really sure. affected my dad. I think it was a year after that. We, we went to see him perform. This is maybe a couple of years before he died. And, uh, and I was, it was unlike any other show I'd ever seen before because Harry Chapin talked all night. Like he told, he sang Cats in the Cradle and Taxi and these great yeah. songs, but he told, and he was funny and charming. And, and I remember thinking, what the fuck am I watching? Like, this is so weird. I, I've never had a singer talked to the audience like this before. And it, it was, you know, you, these are the things that, you know, I'm sure just like with Gilbert and the people that he watched you know, you collect these things that you think, I want to incorporate that into what I do, you know, to make it unique. Isn't there more intimacy, too, in an acoustic show? In, in, oh, yeah. In, yeah, that, that, that calls for it. I saw ELO. Nobody loves Jeff Lynne more than I do. I saw oh, e yeah, ELO awesome. at Radio City a couple of years ago. But he just went song to song to song. He'd tell you the title and play the yeah. song. And there's no interaction with the audience whatsoever. And there's just, you know, not to be greedy, and that's not his personality. But just a couple of moments yeah. You just wish he'd tell you something about the song or what's going on in his life. Draw you in a bit. Yeah, I get bummed out if I see a, a performer that doesn't interact with the audience. It's I, I do feel cheated now because I just feel like, I feel like it's kind of part of the gig, you know? When you hear or sing your songs, uh, do you like get transported back to what you were doing and what you were feeling at the time you wrote them? Sometimes, and sometimes it's like somebody else. It's like I'm hearing somebody, a complete stranger. Sometimes I, I, uh, I, I don't even remember. There's a lot of cases where I'll listen to a song that I haven't heard in a long time, or I'll hear something on the radio, and I'll and I'll hear, uh, especially lyrically, I'll think I don't even remember what I was thinking to come up with that line, you know, and and. Wow. It's so it's a it's a weird I mean and yeah in certain cases I remember where I was at emotionally or what was going on that I you know that made me write that particular song but there's so many of them that I don't I, I I'm not connected to them in the same way anymore um 
So yeah, I, I think that that's a good question. I, I, I definitely don't have the experience that I've heard of other singer songwriters uh, where they immediately are transported back to, you know, that apartment or that mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, there's a couple of cases of it, but for the most part, I, I, it's almost like as another person. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. If you have a vivid memory, we've asked a lot of musicians on the show that we've, we had Paul, Jimmy Webb was here. Holy P- shit. P- Peter Asher was here. Uh, wow. uh, Paul Williams. The first time you heard your song on the radio is a question yes. we, love, we love to ask. Do you have a vivid memory of it? Absolutely. And the so feeling? I'm, absolutely. So it had come out. Um, the first song I ever put out as a singer was a song called Don't Mean Nothing. Mm-hmm. And the first three months that it was out, it was not uh, even released to pop radio. This is back when you know formats were very, very important. And there was there was there was not a lot of crossing over and and so I started you know at rock radio so uh, here in L A we were lucky you know within the first it, it was a song that because I I was lucky enough to get a few of the Eagles to to play on it so Joe Walsh played the guitar solo on it and Timothy B Schmidt and oh, yeah. Randy Meisner former Eagles sang background vocals with me on it so. And at this point, this is 1987, there had not been any Eagles records since the long run in 1980. And so people were starved for an Eagles record. And this is the closest fucking thing they were going to get to it, you know? Um, and so I rode that wave. I mean, I'm proud of the song. I still, mm-hmm. It's still one of my favorite songs to play, and I still hear it on the radio and stuff. But, but the, I think a big reason that it got attention was because of those cameos that were on it. And so it was a pretty quick hit at rock radio. And I was working my ass off promoting it. And so I was not hanging out listening to the radio. And I finally had a day off. I was home in LA and I was driving to some interview or some meeting or something on Santa Monica Boulevard in West LA. And I was looking, I was dial switching, looking for my fucking song. I wanted to hear it. on the, <laughs> Like I was, you know, really after it. And I, and I hit KLOS and there it was. And I pulled my car over and I just remember thinking, holy shit, this is just everything I've been wa- waiting for my whole life. And and then I couldn't wait to hear the DJ say my name. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a pretty long fade at the end of Don't Mean Nothing with all these background vocals and Walsh is playing a solo. And I'm just like, come on, come on. Like, I want to hear him say, and that's Richard Marks and Don't Mean Nothing. And the song gets to the end and the DJ goes, and now a word from Velveeta. <laughs> Motherfucker. I couldn't Humbling. fucking believe it. It's like, God damn it. So, so was it the second time that you heard your song? Yeah, the I think somebody it was said the, yeah. Richard Marks. Yeah, but I don't remember that. All oh, okay. I remember is like that. It's like, it's being, God, really? You can't fucking back announce me? <laughs> Gilbert, we've talked about this. We always imagine, and you're friends with Tom Hanks, Richard. We always um, we always imagine that it was like it, that it'd be like that moment in that thing you do when the guy when the guys hear the uh, the, oh, totally. the song on the radio and they go totally. running running through the streets. And it would have been had the DJ <laughs> back announced me. But the people from Velveeta were probably running mm. through the streets. They were very they were very excited. <laughs> You you're working you you love you said before I mean you love the work of other singers you love the work of other songwriters I saw you talking about um, uh, Alan and Marilyn Bergman 
But you're working. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about the person that you're working with? Uh, sure. Yeah, most sure, recently, of who is a, a, a giant. Is, is, there, well, is there a more successful songwriter? I in don't think than, so. Not one that Burt we Backer. admire more. I mean, George Gershwin and Burt Backrack. There right? you go. In that company. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would love to talk about him for a minute for a couple of reasons. One, uh, he's the most recent example of what I've referenced a couple times already uh about a year and a half ago my wife daisy and i were walking through an airport and i forget what how we were talking about co collaborating because i i write the, the majority of my songs i wrote by myself but i have co-written with a lot of different sure. people over the years and and she said is there anybody left that you really want to write with that you haven't and i said just one Bert backrack and she looked at me and she said so make it happen she said, and hurry the fuck up. <laughs> yes, he's 90. You know? He's 91. Just turned 90. He's 90. 91 now? Uh, wow. he'll, be 90. he'll be 91. Wow. Um, and I didn't know what his health was or what, you know, what was, you know. Um, turns out he's he's going to outlive all of us. I mean, he's a, he's rocking. Um, but at the time, she just sort of hit that. She sort of laid down that gauntlet and she said, you know, make it happen. And I realized that, you know, I've done that in my life. And so I really focused uh, on getting Burt Backrack into my life. I actually met him and worked with him, not as a songwriter, but as a he, he hired me as a background singer in the early 80s before I had a record deal. So I got to work with him on a session one day. Um, and he was nothing but a gentleman and a total pro, of course. And um, and so I just started emailing different people and and you know what we do we you know you you reach out to different people and finally i connected with someone who passed the message to him and he was like yeah of course you know let's let's try to write a song and so we got together about a year ago and and we wrote uh an absolutely gorgeous song called always and um and then we wrote another one recently and he's i i have voicemail messages on my phone right now from him saying so let's come on we got to do a third one let's write another song um you know, I've gotten to work with him in the studio and just hang out with him and he tells great stories and, you know, he's like, he called, we, we talk, we're, we're kind of buddies. He's, he's a gem. He's such a fucking cool guy. Isn't, isn't this business and life in general, uh, strange? You, 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 you say you, your demo tape was rejected by everybody in town. What, two or three times? Oh, more than that. At yeah. least. Yeah. And those most have been, there must've been some low moments. Sure. Obviously, that accompanied that, and, and since and since then, there have been a lot of times where I'm like, you know, what the what, what why can't why isn't this working or why sure. why didn't this happen? Yeah, of course. And yet, you're working with Burt Bacharach, dude. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is sort of a modern equivalent of of, of George Gershwin. That's not hyperbole. It really is. And it really so, is. So you must and, be you must pinch yourself on some level. Well, I do that anyway because I I get off on that. But um, <laughs> I didn't mean to get personal, Rich. <laughs> you know whatever floats your boat yeah he's uh, i have a long list of those kind of moments you know working with bert is is the most recent but you know there were, when i was in high school i was um of all the the people that i admired and was a fan of i don't think there was anybody i was a bigger fan of than a guy named maurice white who was the lead singer sure. of earth earth wind and fire and i was the biggest earth wind and fire freak still am and you know, years later, I ended up standing in a studio with Maurice White singing on my record. Like Maurice White came to the studio to sing background vocals with me on my record. 
though I've had these kind of moments. And Ringo, I, for God's to, sake, you, you, toured Ringo. With, you toured with Ringo. I don't take any of those moments for granted, man. I am. I. I. I, I cherish them. I'm, I've been really, really fortunate to have experienced these dreams come true multiple times, and I can't wait for whatever the next one is. That's do, nice. Do to you hear. have moments where you wish? You were had taken it more seriously, like where you did take something for granted, and then years later thought, "Oh, oh, do where I wish that I had like learned a lesson from it later." Yeah, you? yeah, that's interesting. No, but you, I thought where you were going with that, Gilbert, was, uh, and I don't mean to sit, you know, like switch gears, but the, more interestingly, I was from the time I moved from home, uh from Chicago to LA to pursue my career, I was so focused and so diligent about my work and my career. And then, you know, yeah, I did struggle for a few years, but you know, not like the, some of these other stories you hear where people are, you know, toiling away for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. A few years later, I have start having a great career and I'm touring and thinking that I'm having hits and I'm having all these great experiences. What I didn't do is I didn't have enough fun. I didn't celebrate my successes until I'm doing them retroactively now. You know, I, I, I mark the occasion now of um, a song that went to number one in 1994. Like it's in my calendar and it's only just for me and, and my wife to like have another martini that night and, and say, and for me to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that that thing that I did reached a pinnacle at that time because I didn't celebrate my successes when they were happening. I was always focused on the work, always focused on, and I also was <clears throat> maybe a little fearful that if I really celebrated it and enjoyed it, that it would all be taken away from me. Um, that was stupid. I should have, I should have had way more fun. I should have had, I should have in, indulged in way more debauchery. <laughs> It's not I too late, Richard. Like, yeah, it's not too late. But uh, that, you know, I, I know that's not what you asked me, Gilbert, but it's like, it's really um, retroactively, I think I, I wish I had been a little bit more reckless as a young man and not so focused. But then again, maybe I wouldn't have had the successes that I had. So who knows? You, you, you know what? It's to me, what I've experienced over the years is I've been in so many situations where I'm there depressed and thinking, wow, anybody else would be having the time of his life right now. Oh, yeah, of course. I totally, I, I've been there many, many times. Yeah, sometimes the most successful periods of my career, I was the most personally miserable I've ever been. And and I would, and everybody around me thought, oh, this guy's on the top, on top of the world. But for whatever reasons, you know, various reasons, I was fucking miserable. Like it, it's and, and usually at the most commercially successful times and maybe for you too, but it's like, yeah, I was, you know, maybe that's why I get along with comedians because we're all fucking tortured. Like <laughs> we're psycho. You <laughs> hang around Lewis too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I one time, I think I hosted the Miss Naked Greatest Party. Contest. Well, that and sounds like a hard. That's our hardship. And you're figuring any other guy would have thought, well, uh, okay, I just dropped dead and I'm in heaven now. Right. 
and I was miserable there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> You've always had that problem. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm in the these things or like MTV Spring Break I used to do, and I go. Oh right. Everybody else is having the greatest time ever. But your suffering makes you funny. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Or it well, makes we, makes me a pain in the ass to be around. I, all the all the funniest people are dark people. I mean, yeah. chap, look at Chaplin. Yeah, you know, and W. C. Fields and Groucho is a dark guy. Oh, and, yeah, and, and you know, and on and on. Speaking of Chaplin, uh, you just—it's such a coincidence. Just this morning, I had this really random thought. Uh, we had music playing in our house, and and uh, Smile came on. Oh, yes. yeah. Nat King Cole's version of sure. Smile. And a lot of people don't know that Charlie Chaplin wrote yes. Smile. Yes. And Charlie Chaplin wrote Smile at a time when Charlie Chaplin was Charlie motherfucking Chaplin, right? I think it was and for Limelight, wasn't it? It was for Limelight. Yeah. So here's and the, he here's, used to bill himself as Charlie motherfucking Chaplin. <laughs> as he should. <laughs> but here's the th here's the random thought I had. I, and I'm excited to share this with you. because this is. I'm thinking to myself, I'm putting myself back. I'm like, I, I, if I could have lived at that time, picturing all these professional songwriters, hearing the song, smile, and then be, being told, you know who wrote that? Charlie Chaplin. And seeing all these professional songwriters fucking pissed off. It's like so fucking pissed off. Like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> fuck Charlie Chaplin. Do uh, fucking movies and make people laugh. Fucking stay out of my way, man. Right? That's very funny. I think that's how screenwriters felt about Ben Affleck and Matt Damon winning a, a screenplay Oscar when they yeah. were in their 20s. I mean, there's a yeah. little bit of that with yeah. me. And I, I'm a fan, but like when I saw Bradley Cooper's like sings, like, fuck you, man. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. Handsome and oh, I'm a big movies. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm a, I'm a good singer too. Like, fuck you, man. <laughs> by the way, Richard, speaking of, of Hazard, uh, why don't people seem to write story songs anymore? I mean, there are a handful, but it's uh, like we talked about jingle writing being a dying art. The Harry yeah. Chapins, the Jim Croce's, the uh, even Kenny's uh, Coward of the County. Yeah, you don't, you just don't see it anymore. No, in pop I don't music, know. maybe it's cyclical. I don't know. I, I, that's a good question. I really don't know. I never really thought about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always room for it. I mean, you wrote a good one. Yeah, I yeah yeah I I wrote mine. They everybody else can worry about theirs. Do you think <laughs> that's a good answer? All, all of a sudden, an idea popped into my head how they talk about the MTV generation. And now with Internet, everything has to be quick. Yeah. And they don't want to follow a, a story. Uh, that's probably the answer. Gilbert's got it. I think yeah, maybe. I, I don't think I don't think the attention span is there for a song like people will people will binge game of thrones they'll they won't leave they'll shit their pants in their living room <laughs> rather than you know they'll sit there in a fucking dirty diaper to binge watch a tv show but they won't spend four minutes listening to an entire well, song well so here's here's a similar that. question in, in and i'm I, at the risk of sounding like an old fart i'm in my 50s too is has lyric writing suffered we, I don't, I don't see a Leonard Cohen, a Joni Mitchell, a, uh, uh, you know, a Bernie Taupin, or a Hal David, for that matter. 
No, but you. But there's Halsey, and there's um. Uh, maybe uh, I'm not looking in the right place. And there's Sarah Bareilles, and there's mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm definitely. I'm, I'm not a. Uh, I'm not a, a participant in the pylon of the. I'm not saying you are either, but I'm. I'm. I'm not a participant in the pylon of. There's no good songwriting anymore. Or there's no good. You know. Uh, there's plenty of it. It's maybe. Maybe it's not. You know, in the top forty. Mm-hmm. A, a lot, but there's always plenty. If you go through, you know, I, I, I just, I'm always looking for it. I'm out there, I'm listening to everything and I hear things, um, that are really inspiring and really badass. And I think that what, what is happening though, especially in the last few years with female singer songwriters, um, is they are writing from their perspective of being a young woman in this time period much like you had the carly simons or the carol kings or mm-hmm. the Joni mitchells mm-hmm. yeah their style was totally different it was much more po- maybe poetic or the this is more this is more talking like conversational and i and i'm really impressed by it i mean i i find myself trying to um infuse some of that into my own songwriting and just be a little bit more modern with my own songwriting and just sometimes just say stuff rather than I'm always trying to make it poetic and say it in a way that you've never heard it before, which, you know, I I like trying to accomplish that, but there's also a lot to be said for just fucking saying it and, and meaning it and having people react to it. So yeah, I think there's plenty of it out there. It's just, I I guess I got to work a little harder to find it. Are, yeah. are there songs you've written, much like how actors see performances they've given and cringe, are there songs you've had that either the song itself or just one part of it makes you cringe? And you not go, oh. anything, not anything you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are plenty that there are plenty of songs that if I were to stumble upon the demo tape that no one's ever heard, like the song for Lynn Harwich, for example. <laughs> Which I forget I would how be that like, went. How did yeah, that go yeah, well, yeah. Come, come over, come over and bring tequila. Um, <laughs> no, there's, yeah, of course there's songs that I, that I worked hard on and then they just, they're just shit. You know, they're just, they're just, they just don't measure up, but no one ever heard them. Now that said, there's a ton of my own songs that I love that other people would say they cringe when they hear because they just fucking hate what I do. But personally, no. Everything that I've ever released is something that I absolutely stand behind. And that's why, you know, the the, the concept of, uh, you know, singers and songwriters, but mostly singers that, that say they're sick of a song or, you know, oh God, like I, I think I heard Ray Davies say once, you know, if I have to sing fucking You Got Me, the, I, you really got me, I'm going to blow my brains out. I, I don't, I love what I... I look down at my set list every night. I'm just grateful. Like I love these. I still love singing these songs. That's great. So um, I feel lucky that way. What What are the, tell us as you started out by telling us songs that, that raise the, uh, the hairs on your arm. What's a song, one song that you, Jesus, I wish I'd written that. Oh, red rain by Peter Gabriel. Wow. Good choice. You didn't have when it comes to my, no, it's, that's, that's the, the, to me, that's the benchmark um, that I'll never reach. And I don't even know what the fuck he's talking about in that song. <laughs> I mean, I know a little bit. I kind of get the imagery of it, but it just, I heard that song, uh, I was 22 and and I, it just wrecked me. There was, it was the production, it was the melody, it's his mm-hmm. vocal. It's so 
powerful and and I I remember I was young and I was I was crying. I didn't know why I was crying. It was it just absolutely was a visceral reaction to that song. And there's there are other ones too. I heard this song not too long ago, a few months ago, written um, co-written by a guy that I know who's a there's a group called Magic, and they're a reggae pop band and they had a huge hit a few years ago called rude why you gotta be so rude don't you know i'm human too it's a huge number one song all over the world and i liked it i liked that song it was catchy and fun and and then i met the singer whose name is nazri um um a jew from canada <laughs> uh, there you go gil <laughs> <laughs> and really lovely guy, young guy, <clears throat> really good songwriter, great singer. And I met him a few years ago. And we tried to write a song together and it didn't, it just didn't gel. And then I stumbled upon, you know, it's, like I said, I'm always listening and listening to new music and stuff. And I heard the, a new album by them. And this song came on uh, called More of You. And it was a ballad. And I, and I, I'm even like, I'm Mr. Ballad guy, but I, I get bored with ballads for the most part. Um, and it was, but I listened to it mainly because it was so not what they're known for, and it was be- absolutely beautiful. And then I really listened to the lyrics, and I, and I I wept because um, he wrote these lyrics that said everything that I would say to my wife. I mean, I've written songs for Daisy, and I'm you know I love that I've communicated my feelings for her and mm-hmm. you know told my versions of different stories to her in song but this song said every says everything about how how i feel about her and i was it wrecked me and i called him that i, I still had his number and i called him and i said man i just heard this song of yours and it fucking killed me so yeah i hear i hear songs every once in a while that's just great that it still happens destroy me oh what? yeah yeah you're not too jaded for that no. experience what was the know. first song do you remember that made you cry Oh, that's a good question. Um, Born Free. Really? Yeah, because it was in the movie and... Sure. The lion died. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I cried. And, and all I remember was being little and... Or no, the, did the lion die? No, the, but they had to leave the lion behind. I can't or remember. Like, I can't remember, but El- it was a sad Elsa, ending. Elsa the lion. Elsa the lion. Right. And I think it was... I don't think he, I don't think he died. I think Ban- it was you know Bambi's mom that died. But... <laughs> Is that Michelle Legrand? Also, the la- uh, in Born Free. Yeah, who wrote that music? John Motherfucking Barry. John Barry, forgive me. Um, and so I remember in the theater. That's what I, have, I was four years old or five years old. I have this like memory of uh, crying at the end of the movie, and that that Born Free <laughs> as free as. The- it's like wrecked me. Wow. I looked at my mother like, what the fuck are you trying to do to me? I need therapy now. <laughs> <laughs> good questions you're asking, Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, really good. <laughs> Tell us about the Marx Brothers before we, oh, before we let you get out of here, uh, Richard. Um, I have three sons, the Marx Brothers. Um, Brandon is 28. Um, Lucas is 26. Jesse's 25. They're all incredibly wonderful young men, great human beings. Good and they also you. happen to be really talented singer, songwriter, musicians. I have three sons and not one goddamn doctor, not <laughs> fucking one. <laughs> what a disappointment. Oh, they all want to be musicians and, and performers like dad. And I'm like, yeah, okay. 30 years ago, that was a good idea. Now, not so much. <laughs> 
I tell them, invent a fucking app. <laughs> That's, good <laughs> um, That's good advice. That's good practical great. advice. They are, I'm such a fan of, of what my sons do musically. They're all into different kinds of music and they're, they're, they're working it. You know, they're, 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 they're doing their thing. And, and you perform with them sometimes? And, yeah. Yeah. They, they come up on stage with me and we perform together sometimes. And, and actually I'm, I'm, I just, I'm just about to finish a, a new album that Gilbert was nice enough to mention that'll be out this year. And what we think is going to be the lead off track is a song that I wrote with my middle son, Lucas, that he produced. And I, I, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Wow. That must be an incredible feeling. Oh, oh man. Is. It's the best. And it's not just because they're my, they're my spawn. It's because they're really, really talented. Like I'm a fan of these guys. They're really, really gifted. What a gift to have the three generations. I mean, your mom was singing and your dad was arranging on your records. Now you're working right? with your sons. Yeah. What a nice pretty, thing. Pretty amazing. Gilbert has a son, Max, who I think is a comedy prodigy. Oh, yeah. And I think you're going to have to work him into the act. How old is Max? Soon. Max is nine. Oh, wow. It's going to happen. And You have a nine-year-old? What the I'm fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> he does a lot of push-ups. <laughs> Holy shit. And my my favorite story about him is when he was in preschool, we met with his teacher and his teacher said, well, he he doesn't pay attention and he's always trying to crack jokes. So, <laughs> and I figured, well, I got to definitely beat him now. No shit. Teach him a lesson. And, and the teacher said, where did you learn to be funny? And he said, from my daddy. And she said, oh, your daddy's funny. And he said, he's funny at home, not at work. <laughs> we still oh, my God. Uh, not so totally inaccurate. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so Max is out of the will. That's for sure. Yes, exactly. Is, he's done for. Did you want to try to attempt to sing something with this man? Shit, yes. Uh-huh. Who are you asking, me or Richard? R Richard, God. Richard, are you game for this or? Uh, uh, sure. If it's horrible, we'll cut it out and shit can it. Oh no! If it's horrible, you got to leave it in. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Who's going to think it's going to be my good? Wife says. <laughs> 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 she said that on our honeymoon. <laughs> what do you want to sing with Richard? You know, he sang with Jimmy Webb, Peter Asher, uh, Tony Orlando, Paul right. Williams. Paul Williams, your friend Josh Groban. What did you sing with Josh Groban? Oh, God. Oh. I can't remember. We had Josh sing some of Gilbert's dirty jokes. Oh. And it was, I'll send you a link. I wish that way. I wish quite funny. Uh, so he tries, and Tommy James, he did, he did, uh, he did Money Money with Tommy James. You had to oh, be, you, yes. You had to be yes. there, Richard. I, I have lyrics. They handed me lyrics to Tonight's The Night. You want to try the. Oh, uh, I, I want to try. Uh, um, what the fuck's the name of this show? He wants to try one of yours. <laughs> <laughs> what the it's fuck is right this here waiting, piece of Gilbert. shit? Right here waiting. Oh, this fucking piece of shit you want to try, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I'm if only, for you, Richard. If only I can now say I have a cover version of Right Here Waiting by Gilbert Gottfried. That's yeah. worth it right there. <laughs> What okay. If, what if you guys, now this is Skype, so it's tricky. So you guys will have to pause. You'll each have to take a section. Yes. And then our, our, our brilliant engineer, Frank, will sew it together. Now, we have it a certain way. Do you want me to do the first part or you to do the second I think Richard should part. start so you remember the tune. Yes. <laughs> and then you'll sing it up to I'll be right here waiting for you. And then I sing the second part. 
You're going to take the second verse and chorus? Why? Do you want me to take the first? No, I'm just, I'm sitting here in shock that you go like you're ready to do this. <laughs> yes! Okay. <laughs> He'll t- Why don't you let Richard start? Shit, I wish I'd brought a guitar. But oh, we'll just we'll do it a cappella. We'll put some you music have a guitar? Oh, he's got a guitar. Oh, Hang on. my this, God. It, is, it just keeps getting better. See, so if my part doesn't sound good. I can't play good, it, but we'll. we'll yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. If my part doesn't sound good, it's because of our lack of instruments here. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, no, actually, what you can say now, Gilbert, is if your part doesn't sound good, it's because Richard fucked it up on the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think we can just maybe Look do at it. this. Is it in okay, tune? I'm getting a I've got a guitar. Now. Hang on. You need a that good. Yeah, close enough. Sounds can good enough to fake it? it. Yeah. They're going to plug it in, Richard? That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> no. You're going to play it acoustic? Yeah, because it's going to sound like shit if we plug it in. Okay, here we go. Okay, okay you can start us off, Richard. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yeah. Yes. You ready, Gilbert? All yes. right, here we go. Oceans apart, day after day, and I slowly go insane. I hear your voice on the line, but it doesn't stop the pain. If I see you next to never How can we say forever? Not yet. Wherever you go, don't sing it. Whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. Whatever it takes, or how my heart breaks. I will be right here waiting for you. Are you ready, Gilbert? I took five granted. Wait. Wait. What? Two, three, go. I took for granted all the times that I thought would last somehow. I hear the laughter. I taste the tears. But I can't get near you now. Oh, can't you see it, baby? <laughs> You've got me going crazy. Take it home. <laughs> Wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. Whatever it takes. Or how my heart breaks, I will be right here waiting for you. Next, Richard. No, I think we leave it at that. <laughs> Why ruin a good thing? But here's here's the here's the really great thing is that you know Gilbert asked me a little while ago what was the first song that ever made me cry. This is the most recent song that ever made me cry. See, now that's a callback like a good comic. Oh, you know that is. <laughs> Holy shit. That was amazing, Gilbert. You fucking tore through that song like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> Listen, you're, you're in good company, Richard. We're going to cut a greatest hits. It's, it's you, it. It's you, Jimmy Webb, Asher, Tony Orlando, Tommy James. Who else? Josh? God, that was I wild. I love it. I'm glad. Thank you. You're a sport. 
Well, let's get some plugs in too. Are you touring with Rick Springfield? Uh, I'm doing a couple of shows. We've been doing shows sporadically together. Um, oh, so not we, a yeah, tour. Yeah, we have a. This is not a tour. Okay, my bad. He tour. He's doing his tour. I'm doing my tour, and we meet up from time to time because we've been friends for 30 years. And um, we're yeah, we're playing uh, Ravinia in Chicago uh, on June 14th, I think. No, June 15th. I'm playing with the Nashville Symphony on June 14th. Okay, great. Where's that? Um, no, in at, Nashville. The skir- at the Skirmerhorn in Nashville. Okay. Um, with the Nashville Symphony, maybe the finest symphony in the world. I mean, I've worked with a lot of them. And then June 15th, Rick Springfield and I are playing at Ravinia in Chicago. And I don't know the date. There's another Rick Springfield uh, show at the Rodney Strong Vineyards in California. Um, yeah, we're doing, we'll probably do another half a dozen shows together. I love doing that show with Rick because we've been friends for so long. And I always say, you know, two dicks walk onto a stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people go to richardmarks.com, they can get all the updates on this and, and, Absolutely. and, and see the dates. And then when is the re-release of... Um... By the way, I always I always go on first on those Rick Springfield shows. We, we close the show together doing a couple of songs, but I always go on first because if there's going to be two dicks, I want to be the first dick. <laughs> Sorry, when is what the, were you saying? When is the release of, of, of Repeat Offender, the, uh, oh, the, 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 the anniversary? The revisited, yeah, I revisited. took the, the, that came out a couple days ago. Okay. And it's it's uh, Repeat Offender Revisited, that's out there, and it's sort of new versions and live versions and acoustic versions of the hits from Repeat Offender. And then, um, and then in the, I think it's going to be September or October, the new album, which is still, I haven't titled the album, but the new album will be out, and uh, you can illegally download that at that point. Okay, and we want people, our <laughs> listeners, they, and they will, we want our listeners to go to look at uh, uh, Richard's very funny, Funny or Die video. That was your premise. Yeah, it was fun. And, that and, was fun. And, and also, if they can find the uh, the colonic uh, ad, you're hilarious in that, that shit, as well. That shit never dies. It's on YouTube forever. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate this, as, I totally enjoyed it, gentlemen. Thank you so much. My wife woke me up one night and she said, she was sitting in bed with a phone looking at Twitter and she said, hey, Richard Marks is fucking hilarious. Really? He'd be great on the podcast. Ah, uh, that's and, awesome. And, well, and, give, her, and, give her my best. I will. And here you are. It was great. Thanks so much. And Gilbert, I'll see you at my house for tequila and revealing that song. Oh, okay. I'll be there. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Thanks, guys. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and uh, the singer who's going to be singing the Lynn Harwood song <laughs> any minute now. <laughs> Is she going to be okay with the fact that her name came up five times? Oh, yeah, she'll love it. Okay, fantastic. The Jew singer. <laughs> the Jew-ish. Yes. Singer. Yeah. Yes, the Jew singer whose new album, <laughs> Fuck the Goyim. <laughs> now, that's actually just the first single. But, uh... <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Richard Thanks, Marks. guys. See you later. Bye-bye.
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 